Hello, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab. Thanks for listening to the American Cancer Society's Research Podcast. I'm Joe Cotter here with your host, Dr. Susanna Greer. Hey, Susanna. Hey, Joe. Before we get started, we want you to know that the American Cancer Society has added a section to our website on coronavirus, COVID-19, and cancer. It has links to common questions about coronavirus and cancer, what to ask your healthcare team about COVID-19, and more. It also includes links to our live chat and our 24-hour helpline if you need to speak with somebody about cancer and coronavirus. Today you're going to hear from Dr. Anthony Lung. He's an associate professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, but before we get to that, uh, Susanna, I wanted to ask you about kind of how he and other researchers are kind of being affected by COVID-19. I guess a little context uh, twice a year, we conduct a grant competition at the American Cancer Society so that we can use donor dollars to support the most innovative, you know, kind of most impactful cancer research from universities across the country. So as part of that competition, you talk with a lot of cancer researchers. So what are you hearing these days about how COVID-19 is affecting them and their labs? Yeah, I, I appreciate you asking that. It's certainly something that's been weighing heavy on my mind the past couple of weeks. So there's not a person on the planet, unfortunately, who is not impacted by and aware of the pandemic that we find ourselves in. And I think how that pandemic impacts us is situational, right? But I can group into categories the impact on different populations. And one population that, as you said, I'm especially in tune with are scientists and clinicians around the country. So for individuals who are conducting research, most research labs deemed non-essential, so those not performing research directly related to the pandemic are closed right now. So that means the same thing that it means for most of us, that scientists are at home, their staff is at home, your graduate students and postdocs and technicians, everybody is at home. And as you might imagine, it's really hard to do much science from home. So yeah, think, that's it's got to be different. For, I mean, for me, I just bring my computer home and keep working. I guess it's not the same for these folks. Yeah, it's, it's not the same. And it does depend on the kind of, of course, scientist you are. If you are running a wet lab, all of that has come to a screeching halt. And what is some, a wet lab? So a, a wet lab would be a place where you are actually doing experiments in test tubes or in tissue culture. So using things like cell lines or you're using uh, animals, animal models to do your work. So all that has come to a screeching halt because it requires you to be in a lab doing your work. Um, and that would be versus a like you might think about an epidemiologist. So we've heard lots from epidemiologists over the past few weeks especially folks who work at the CDC and the World Health Organization. So epidemiologists don't have wet labs, right? They are relying on data and their investigations involve manipulation and understanding of data sets. So you can do that from somewhere else. Um, so I think the, the impact on the individual scientist has a lot to do with what you do for a living. Um, if you are using animals, some of that can be, I have no other word other than devastating, right? Um, animals that are involved in experiments have to be 
maintained and housed and fed just like our pets at home. These are clearly not pets, but they are live animals, whether they are anything from a nematode, <laughs> right, all the way up to, you know, large livestock. So those experiments have come to a screeching halt. Um, if you're maintaining cell lines, you can't do that when humans aren't in the lab. So I think in some ways there's a lot of negative here, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. I do think in some ways there is some positive, though, that there are things scientists can do from home. One of them is what we're known for, which is thinking. We can read, we can think, we can plan, um, can support each other and collaborate. And many labs, some of the most moving things I've seen are labs donating their equipment um, and their protective equipment, so gloves, shields, face masks, um, to clinicians who are on the front lines of this pandemic. Um, and then also collaborating. So maybe if their research was not virally related, but they have tools and they, they can help turning their research to, to this massive humanitarian effort against this pandemic. When they go back to their labs and, and things start getting back to normal, is it easy to just kind of pick up and get back into it? Like if you're working with cell lines or, or something, what's it like getting back to work? Well, that's a great question. I think some people have a higher stress response to this than others. Um, I do think about, so on a, a less monumental scale, there are lots of scientists, myself included, who did pause their work at certain times in their careers for things like parental leave, right? If you have a baby, you're probably not, hopefully not, going to show up the next day and start pipetting again and doing experiments. Many scientists were impacted by environmental disasters like Katrina, things like that. So I think the positive is that there are templates for how to pick up and get moving again and get science moving. And that 100% will happen because I think you'd be really hard pressed to find a group of individuals more motivated, more excited, um, just more driven by what they do than scientists. So it will happen. It will also be hard. If you are doing research that involves cell lines and animals, you're not starting over, but you're starting from the place where you came to a screeching halt. And it, it takes time to get going again and to rebuild. And that can be frustrating. That's the negative. But you can also think and plan and formulate new ideas and new hypotheses. And so science will recover. Um, but like many parts of our world, it it will be a, a slow recovery, um, but I, I don't want anyone to think that science won't go on. Um, it certainly 100% will, and hopefully we'll do a lot of learning during this time and a lot of reading and thinking and um, come back stronger than ever. So in all the conversations you've been having these last couple of weeks with scientists and with grantees, is there one story that sticks out? And you don't have to say her name or his name, but is there one experience that somebody's had with her lab getting shut down that sticks out? That's a hard question. I've had lots of them. I did talk to one individual who just said they wanted to be the last person to leave their lab. Actually made me tear up a little bit because they said, this is my life. This is my home and I want to be the one that shuts the door and I'll be the one to open it again. And it just took my breath away um, because this person has worked so hard and sacrificed so much. You know, what I took from that was not the sad bit, but the hope that 
I'm shutting the door for now because it's the best thing to do for my team, for my department, but I will be the first in line to open this door again. And it was just lovely. And I think that's something we can all take from this. Um, let's do what's the best for the world right now. Um, and when it's okay, we'll, we'll be back at it again. And with that, I think the transition to the interview is actually pretty easy because Dr. Lung talked about some of this. Could you kind of set the stage a little bit? Tell us a bit about Dr. Lung's work. He's a pioneer in his field, and it's an interesting field that's pretty timely. Oh my gosh, yes. You guys are going to love this. So especially if you are a walking, talking, breathing human listening to this podcast, you're going to understand how critical RNA is uh, to your ability to do all those things. So Anthony just, he tells the coolest story about why RNA is so essential. So RNA, you know, it is at the process of, of life, right? It's at the center of the process of life. Um, and he, he really illustrates how essential RNA is. And I'll just share with you one anecdote. Um, so if we think about DNA, right, as the blueprint of life, he compares DNA to being like a book in the library. And so if, if you take that to be true, he postulates that we could think about RNA as being a copy of that book that we could take out. And then RNA can be used in our cells to do all kinds of things. So when you take that book out, when you take that blueprint, that copy of DNA out, you can use it as instructions, right, to make proteins. You can use it as a scaffold to build things on. You can use it actually to influence the function of proteins. And then really relevant to our conversation today, there, we, I guess we, we can't forget about the fact that there are some viruses that actually the RNA is the book. It is the genome, and, and that's certainly the case for the novel coronavirus. So Anthony is going to take us through this really cool story of understanding how RNA is regulated, why it's so important, and then take you down two parallel paths of how RNA regulation is important in cancer and how we can target that regulation, and also how it may be important for um, the COVID-19 infection that's on all of our minds. So I'll turn it over to Anthony. Hi, Anthony. How are you? Good, good. Nice to meet you. We find ourselves in really interesting circumstances these days, challenging circumstances. So it's the middle of March, and everyone in the country and the world is really bracing for what the next phase of this pandemic will look like. I really want to talk about your science, but I also just, could mm -hmm. you help me understand how has the research community been impacted? Maybe share what, what are you hearing from your colleagues? Well, I think there are two sides, right? One, there would be quite a lot of negative impacts. But on the other hand, I also see a brighter side as well in this difficult situation. First, and on the negative side of because nobody wants our research to be even paused for a second. And I can see some of my colleagues uh, that affects most, particular to those who work on animal models of diseases that sometimes takes years to develop. Especially imagine those, um, my colleagues that work on aging and cancer. So those experiments need to be stopped. 
emotionally, it is a sad moment to see how quiet the labs and corridors are because they are usually buzzing with conversation, either personal or scientific. And then for my trainees or um, myself would be concerning about the timeline for graduation and tenure. But I can see also our school taking a proactive stance in dealing with this issue. So it will be also, if I could imagine, like the funding agency, if they can consider extending the grants, not just as a no-cost extension, but really extending the grants, if possible, that would be great. But on the other hand, I think um, I can see that the positive impact is um, COVID-19 research is there in full steam. I have some police really quick in action and rush to design the proper clinical trials to help. For many of us that cannot go back to the lab, I think it's, um, as also I told my trainee that this is a great time to read back the literature, but more importantly to reflect, because this is a lost art in this rapid ways um, of academic, academia. But I also am greatly encouraged by the collaborative spirit at Hopkins, because some of my colleagues does not work on viruses, but they, through me, they want to reach out to um, people that work on coronavirus, and then they see what they can make a difference. That's what I kind of see. Um, but sometimes also hearing from colleagues that this is uh, quite a challenging time to handle both family and work together. I, I love that. I love what you shared about, I think, all the things that are top of mind for all of us around negative impacts and our concerns about the research community, all research, cancer research, research on all diseases in all spaces. But And, and all of that weighs heavy on our hearts. But I, I'm especially appreciative of you highlighting all the positive spaces where we can all take a proactive stance here. And you you mentioned funding agencies like the ACS, your university, and then I love that you brought it down to on an individual level how everyone's kind of just asking themselves, what can we do? We can read, we can reset, we can start new collaboration. So that's just lovely. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, I, I have one question for you in particular because one of the things I've thought so much about the past couple of weeks is that research labs are really like families. Um, I, and my graduate students and postdocs were like my own kids. So I'm just wondering how, how are you supporting each other? How are you, you, you mentioned that you're encouraging them to read and reset. Um, I guess maybe how does that actually happen in a time when we can't be together? Well, indeed, uh, we are like family. One of my students got sick cough and then fever just right near the time uh, when the school began to shut down. And that was about two weeks ago. I remember it was a scary moment as well. I was really concerned about his health. At the same time, I need to trace back his contacts in the lab and make sure everyone is also okay too. I, it took quite a couple of days before he can talk to his doctor and a few more days before he got tested. During those times, I made sure to check in with him twice a day. The test results for flu came back negative, but then the test for COVID-19 took longer before we can find out the answer. 
At that time, we were really concerned about whether he has COVID-19. But I told him that it is what it is. Don't worry. The most important thing is that you stay healthy. But at the end, it was quite a huge relief that he was test negative for COVID-19. He's now recovering. And it was great yesterday. We just uh, chat on the online and then it is his usual self and with sparkling eyes, full of energy again. So that's what I like. Um, my lab has an open door policy and we really now take advantage of the current technology. My lab used the communication tool Slack so they can always just text me, just like lock my door and then we can chat through video. But I must admit that the lack of real human interaction is a problem. Especially, I know my lab tends to have coffee, tea, uh, sometimes lunch together. So I encourage them, they just speak one another online to chit chat. And especially, I, I, I'm most concerned my students who come from overseas, because they're really far away from their families. They live alone. So I, I pay special attention in our usual one-to-one -one time to chat about life and then concern in general. So that's how I want to make sure that we are a team together. We are in this together. You know, I think that could be the title for all the podcasts that we're doing right now is we're in this together, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, so yeah. I, I think our listeners will really appreciate hearing that scientists are we're just like everybody else. We're concerned about the people that work with us and for us. We thrive on that one-on-one -on -one interaction with each other and really miss that right now and that we're all working very hard to use virtual technologies to stay in touch. And um, because it, it's the human part of our interactions that is so critical and um, will see us through. So thank you for sharing that. All right, so we're gonna talk about some RNA because this is absolutely your jam. So, <laughs> so let's level set, though. For those of us who don't think about RNA all day long, maybe just if you would help me to answer just two pretty basic questions. So first of all, just tell us what RNA is, and then help us to understand, maybe in that description, why is RNA so important in gene expression and kind of the functional capabilities of our genes? Sure. There are... As we all know, always in the um, media, say that there, there are 3 billion letters in our DNA. And this blueprint of life has millions of switches, turning genes on and off so that it will be at the right place and the right time. That's why we have different parts of our body, even using the same blueprint. But if this regulation go awry, disease such as cancers occur. And RNA is at the center of this gene regulation, either serving as an intermediate for making proteins or as a functional product by its own right. Recently, I talked to my student, Veronica, and she has a very good illustration, so I better use it. If DNA is like books in a library archive, RNA is like a copy of the books that can be removed from the library to reference that information elsewhere. Some RNA will go on to provide instruction for how to build protein, just like cirrhosis of the blueprints for, making, uh, for buildings. Other RNA may act as uh, scaffolds or switches to regulate process. 
So it's like a legal document, which concretely dictates where things should be and how they should function. And then the other class of RNA will just simply influence the effects of proteins or other RNA. And you can imagine it's like novels or textbook chapters that can influence, but only cumulatively or indirectly they direct changes. One last word for RNA. RNA can actually be the genome, the blueprint of life, as in the case of coronavirus. When they get into the cells, they immediately have to copy to make a lot of viral proteins. And these proteins in turn assemble as the copying machine so that they can make more viral blueprints to infect other cells. All right. Well, you've convinced me. So RNA, <laughs> <laughs> RNA is, is pretty critical. So you shared that RNA is a scaffold. RNA can provide instructions. RNA can be an influencer. And then timely for today's podcast, RNA can actually be the genome. So RNA seems pretty critical for life. So if that's the case, yeah. I imagine RNA is, is, is very tightly regulated. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, back to the illustration, similar to how we consume all the text in the library based on our current interests or based on how accurate we think the information is. It is important for RNA to remain tightly regulated so that the cells do not have irrelevant or incorrect physiological activities. This RNA regulation can occur in one of two ways. Either we change the rate of RNA production or their decay. Uh, that is to say, making more copies of the book or just throw them to the trash can. Disease sometimes occur when the copier start to make mistakes. This information could carry the wrong information, uh, instruction to make proteins. Let's imagine back to our illustration that uh, a mistake was made in a building blueprint. Say one centimeter was written as one inch. But then depending on where this mistake is in the blueprint, if it is in the foundation, the blueprint that make the foundation, it could be fatal. But elsewhere, maybe in um, in an um, office, then it may not be ideal, but it's still okay. On the other hand, um, it also depends like which books that contain this error. If it is on a novel, it may spoil the reader's interest. But if it is on a legal document, as we all know, even a comma could change the original intention and then it will get into as a big trouble. In the case of RNA regulation, error can lead to developmental defects or diseases from viral infection, cancer, to neurodegeneration. But at the same time, as we know more about how RNA works in cells, it also offers new therapeutic options. For example, um, the first COVID-19 vaccine is actually made of RNAs. The way how it works is that it lets our own body to make a specific viral protein which is usually located on the surface of the coronavirus. And because the expression of this foreign protein in our own human body 
then it triggers our immune system to make antibodies. So we don't need to have a virus to infect our uh, bodies to make this uh, fighting antibodies. But instead, we just need a fragment, and then it will help protect us. And I, ho- I really hope that it works. All right. So y- you mentioned the potential of a COVID vaccine. And I, I do want to I want to loop back to that because I think it, it's it's fascinating the as we think about vaccine development and how that may happen as related to this particular mm-hmm. pandemic. Um, you, you are well known as a having a, <laughs> extraordinary expertise in cancer virology as well. So could you maybe just help us to understand, let's take a step back and help us to understand what these two things have in common. So we are all very concerned right now that we may come into contact with droplets that carry the novel coronavirus and that that virus would establish an infection. Um, and similar to if we were thinking about the flu or measles or, or any other mm-hmm. infectious disease. So that is quite different when we think about, in some ways, a cancer cell, which starts off as being self and then changes through the processes, some of which we've talked about, when that DNA blueprint is misread um, and becomes non-self, becomes a cancer cell. But I think one of the things I guess that we could start talking about is that those two cells, the infected cell and Mm -hmm. the cancer cell, do have some things in common. And one of those is stress. So I'd like for you to kind of walk us through how does that RNA regulation change in stressed cells. Um, and maybe you could carry on some of those amazing examples you've given us <laughs> about, right, the difference between a blueprint that um, has a mistake or a, a book that has a mistake and kind of what that might entail. But if you could take us through the cancer story and then the story of an infection, that would really be helpful, I think, to our listeners. Yep. The, the fact that RNA regulation changes during stress is exactly what excites me about uh, in science because we can learn how amazing our body can adapt and respond. Our human body is constantly sensing the environment and changing our gene expression so that the right kinds of the message, the RNA, the instruction are being provided at the right time and in the right cell. Using back the library archives as our illustration, you can imagine during virus infection, our body will go to the right sections in the library and then find books and then try to make copies of the instruction on how to produce uh, the equivalent of masks, gloves, and medicine to fight this infection. But then when the infection is subsided, which we hope this is done now, then we no longer need these copies and they can go to trash. However, in the case of cancer cells, the illustration will be slightly different because the purpose of the cancer cells, for them, they are to, they just want to survive. So you can imagine that somehow these cancer cells take over our library archive and cordon off many sections, but only our bodies to make RNA copies of instructions so that they make more of themselves or they, so that they can continue to grow. 
Oh, that's so interesting. So we're thinking about RNA in a, in a different way in a response to stress. Thrive versus survive. So in an infected mm-hmm. cell, you mentioned thrive. So how can I, as an infected cell, deal with this problem? How can I make the tools that I need in order to overcome, in order to thrive. And then in a cancer cell, the cell has a very different mentality. It's a mentality of, I'm gonna survive no matter what. So Mm -hmm. how can I use this RNA blueprint to instruct the generation of proteins that are gonna help me divide? All right, so if that's true, if you in a cancer cell have the mentality of surviving and an infected cell using RNA to thrive, there are all different ways that RNA metabolism, the rate at which RNA is generated can be, that that can happen. So one of your areas of expertise is particularly around RNA metabolism and um, a process called ADP Ribosylation. So I don't want everybody to turn off the podcast right <laughs> this second, right? So help us, help us to understand what what is this and how in the world is it related to stressed cells, um, both in our surviving cancer cell and our thriving infected cell? Yeah, that's, that's my major concern. People hear, wow, ADP ribosylation. That's a big word, but I don't know what it is. But ADP ribosylation is just one of many modifications of proteins. And this type of modification can change the functions of proteins. So some of them make them more powerful, but some may shut down their function. So you can think of the protein now when they have a modification, similar to put on a cape, which could means that they become superheroes or they could be a super villain. But it depends on what kind of cape they put on. In the case of ADP ribosylation, the modification itself is look like RNA. What we recently found is that ADP ribosylation tends to be increased during stress situation, and it serves as an RNA mix. So they will take the place of some of the RNA that's where the protein usually bind to. As a result, the original roles of this RNA cannot be performed. So it's sometimes, in most of the case, I think it serves as an inhibitory function, stop uh, shutting down the protein function. But we are just still in early days. So we'll see. ADP ribosylation then is something that it sounds like we might want to inhibit in some cases, especially if it's ADP ribosylation that's in the supervillain role, right? If the cape that's being put on is a bad cape. And so, in fact, there are inhibitors of this process that are actually FDA approved to treat multiple cancers. These are called PARP inhibitors. So how do these work? How do they deal with this supervillain who, in the way that you described it so nicely, allows a process that can 
circumvent, I guess, RNA and change mm -hmm. um, the way proteins function. So how do PARP inhibitors work? PARPs are a special class of proteins that catalyze the chemical reaction to add this modification, ADP ribosylation, onto protein. PARP inhibitors are to stop this special class of protein from adding this modification. The reason why we care about this, in, this class of inhibitors is that they're now, uh, as you say, an FDA-approved drug. They're, going to, um, they're treating breast, ovarian, prostate, and pancreatic cancers, especially for those that have defects in their ability to fix DNA. As you know, our human DNA is constantly damaged by the chemicals from our environment. It could be the cigarette smoke or UV sunlight. But the good news is that we also have our very efficient system in our body to repair DNA. One of these DNA repair proteins is called BRCA, breast cancer susceptibility gene which many of your listeners may have heard about it. If someone gets a mutation of this gene, it means that 80% chance that one person will get cancer by age 80 at one point in their life. So how it works uh, for this inhibitor is that there are 17 part members in our human uh, body, and one of the parts is also a DNA repair protein. When cancer cells that have defects in the BRCA gene, they have a weakened uh, DNA repair system. So these cancer cells now re rely on this DNA repair pops for survival. And if we now use the pop inhibitor on this type of cancer cell, they will kill them specifically while keeping the normal cells, which does not have this defect on the BRCA gene, untouched. So this would be like a very selective way just to kill the cancer cells, but then keeping the healthy uh, cells normal. Let's come full circle then. So you've talked to us in a really lovely way about how important RNA is. And we focused a lot on RNA is truly a, a blueprint for so many things that are going to happen downstream and because it's important it can also um, have mistakes and those mistakes can have mm -hmm. pretty huge consequences um, we talked about some of the consequences being um, in cancers and some of the other consequences maybe in infectious disease so I'd like to bring this full circle to where we find ourselves today which is in a little bit of a scary spot as we think about the coronavirus. So we're in the middle of this pandemic that's driven by a virus, this novel coronavirus. Can you help us to understand the role that this modification, ADP ribosylation, seems to play in coronavirus infection? You talked to us about cancer, but maybe take us through what's happening in infected cells. Yes, indeed, ADP ribosylation is important for coronavirus infection. My lab studied a class of protein that has the opposite function of PARP that catalyzes the removal of ADP ribosylation. 
this class of protein is found in many organisms, the full spectrum from us humans to baking yeast to bacteria, but also for virus that their genome are made of RNA. And this class of protein first caught my eyes when I realized that it is also found in coronavirus that called SARS, which caused a havoc in my hometown, Hong Kong, back in 2003. So I was really excited to think, oh, finally, I have a chance to use my scientific training to do something useful and close to my heart. However, this coronavirus is quite big and not easy to work with. So together with my colleague, Dr. Diane Griffin, who is just downstairs uh, of my lab, we used another virus class called alpha virus as a model and show that this class of protein is really important for the virus survival and also disease progression. Our results uh, is also confirmed by others who show that, that the activity of these protein to remove ADP ribosylation is also critical for the disease progression for SARS. All right, so if that's true in SARS, which I love what you said that you felt like you'd finally use your scientific training to do something useful. And it just shows how, how tough these pandemics are because of course you have done an incredible amount to be impactful in so many disease spaces, including cancer. Um, but I'm really interested in what you just said that if ADP ribosylation turns out to be important for the survival of SARS and in the progression of SARS, do you think then that ADP ribosylation, could it be important in the same way in patients who are infected with COVID-19? Yes, I believe so. This protein domain is quite druggable as it has some pockets that may fit in small molecule chemicals to stop their function. In fact, my lab has been working on it for a couple of years, but it has been difficult to find any funding to support it. So we were not moving in the speed that I would like. I still remember um, last January, in, in last year, in 2019, I talked to a group of investors to pursue making inhibitor for this protein class, developing as an antiviral medication. But at the end of the meeting, I, I was not successful. And then they told me that um, virus infection does not have a big enough market. And now we know it's not true. Even now, but then even now, it's still very difficult to find funding because it does not have an immediate clinical aspect, uh, impact immediately. Because it takes time for us uh, to really develop to the drug state. It's not something that on the shelf. But we will press on because I think this protein domain is conserved in both coronavirus or the alpha virus, which is mosquito-borne. And with the global uh, warming, climate change, definitely a lot of mosquitoes go to places that it will not be, and it will spread the virus in a place that we are not expected. And we don't have our immune system to ready and for this type of infection. So as we know, these two class of virus uh, still have no drug to treat or vaccines to prevent. So it's always good to invest now and investigate more 
so that we are ready when we need it. Yeah, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone on the planet who said that there's not a market for studies now in this novel coronavirus. So certainly we're hopeful for the work that you're doing, um, for the investigations that you have go ongoing, um, and we hope that you'll continue and certainly that you'll find success. I just have one more question, which is many of the listeners to our podcast are cancer patients and caregivers. Is there a message mm -hmm. uh, as a researcher that you would like to share with these listeners in particular? I want to say thank you. I learned a lot by interacting with cancer patients or ex-cancer patients. They're the survivor. One transformative experience for my lab was when a group of cancer survivors and caregivers came to our lab. We shared the struggles and challenge we have in doing foundational basic research and what is need to be done. At the same time, this type of in-person interaction really impacts my trainees about the reality and the urgency of our research. As one cancer survivor nicely puts it, this type of experience helps us to put human faces on the molecules that we work on day in and day out, which really inspire us to move forward, especially in tough times. My final message is to keep funding a diverse portfolio of foundational science. All drugs that we have today, or we seek today, are built on a strong foundation, and that's basic science. Think about a huge tree that keeps on years after years to give out great food. It all depends on a strong foundation. Thank you, Anthony. We're so grateful for everything you've shared with us, for the work that you and your trainees do, and for really illustrating how the science that you study is incredibly relevant to cancer and to cancer patients, and also incredibly relevant to all of us as we face this pandemic. So best of luck mm -hmm. to you and, you and your team. Thank you. Thank you for the time.